If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is The Art of Awesome, episode number 46. I'm always looking at how to add value, whether it's to my relationship with Jamie, whether it's to my children, whether it's to real estate I'm purchasing, whether it's to sponsors when I was an athlete. Um, it's about adding value. And if you could answer that very simple fundamental question um, and apply it everywhere in life, you're going to be hard-pressed to not be successful. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. Welcome to the Art of Awesome. My name is Nick Troutman, and I'm a professional athlete, entrepreneur, family man, and adventure seeker. My goal is to share with you stories, knowledge, and inspiration as we continue on the journey together, searching for that secret sauce to producing awesome results in everyday life. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get to it. Welcome back, everyone, to The Art of Awesome. I am your host, Nick Troutman, and today is Monday, so we have just another incredible interview for you guys today. Today, we're able to talk with uh, one of the faces of kayaking and someone who just really helped kind of pave the way um, to creating a career within the sport of kayaking, Teo Berman. Teo talks with us about his career as a Red Bull athlete, world record holder, and some of the events and races that he was able to win. But we also go really deep into his pivot and retirement from kayaking, what he has been up to after that with finance and real estate. And honestly, there are just so many nuggets of gold sprinkled throughout this interview. Uh, We talk a lot about risk management, about taking opportunity that comes at you, and finding people that will help you but making sure that you are providing value to them first. Guys, if you pay close enough attention, this is going to just provide a ton of value to you because Teo's life experience and uh, just some of the stuff that he says is so insightful and can be applied to all different aspects of life, whether you're an athlete, whether you're into uh, finance, whether you're into real estate investing, and just there's a lot of value added to this conversation, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. So let's go ahead and jump into it. Here is Teo Berman. First off, Teo, thank you so much for joining me. I'm stoked to have you on the show. Teo, you um, are you know, quite known in the paddling community. You are a Red Bull athlete, uh, multiple world record holder. You've won just a flurry of events. Um, and, and you really kind of just helped set the stage for a lot of um, athletes as kind of you know, showing that you can make a career in, in kayaking, which was super cool. Um, although can you just kind of run us through a little bit of your story, 
how you started, um, and then kind of also maybe just a little bit of like, you know, after retiring from kayaking and what you've been up to then. Well, Nick, good being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're welcome to interject at any point because it's a kind of a loaded question that requires a long-winded answer. So jump in at any point. Um, I have a very unorthodox upbringing. I was raised on a mountain with no running water, electricity, or indoor restroom. And um, I think that that helped cultivate who I am today. Um, to skip forward, because I know that we only have an hour, uh, when I got out of high school, I'd been paddling for several years, and I decided to go down to Central, to Central America and Mexico looking for first ascents. When I got back from that trip, I knew I had to get a job doing something, and I didn't want to do something that I hated. So I asked myself what I liked more than anything, and the answer was simple. It was kayaking. So I thought, ah, I'm going to make a career out of kayaking. Now, at the time, that sounded even more outlandish than it does now, given that kayaking is still a small sport. Back then, kayaking was a lifestyle. Literally, back then, people didn't really know the difference between a canoe and a kayak. And when I started saying that, people said, Taylor, you're insane. Like, nobody's making money kayaking. It's not even a sport. Um, my grandparents were very orthodox, so to speak, very against it. So why don't you become a lawyer or a doctor, uh, something along those lines. And, and I said, no, I'm going to do it. Um, so what I did was I looked at myself as... Ultimately, it was a business, and I was a product, and I was going to have a shelf life. Uh, I was going to have an introduction, an incline, maturity, and decline. So what I did is I chose to very actively manage my career. I recognized at that point that I couldn't rely on agents and publicists because, again, it wasn't even a sport. Um, I looked to people ahead of myself in this fringe endeavor that I thought were doing things well, and then looked at those same people and analyzed what I didn't think they were doing well. People like Dan Gavir, really the, one of the godfathers of kayaking. And he was very good at marketing himself back there, back then, but he really had no idea how to truly monetize the name brand that he was creating within the, the sport. I recognized that the sport was so tiny, it wasn't a sport, that I needed to have the name recognition outside of paddling so that I could do a better job at monetizing being an athlete because as much as I love paddling, I didn't want to be retiring 30 to 35 with nothing but a bunch of great memories, then needing to go off to college. I wanted to be able to walk away from paddling at some point down the road and know that I had been living for today, but not at the expense of tomorrow. Um, so I just took a very analytical business approach to being an athlete, always recognizing I was one injury away from retirement. Uh, I was reading books on the stock market back when I was 17. I'm, I have a, we all have different strengths in life and, and, and interests in life. And mine has always been business. It's been business and athleticism. So I was just really fortunate that my two strengths happened to, happened to uh, very much mutually benefit each other through my paddling career. So when I got into the, my paddling career, um, I was also going to college at the same time, recognizing that it may not work out. It wasn't until after I'd set my first world record in a uh, 98 foot waterfall descent that I was so busy that I had, uh, I had networks like Dateline and BC coming to interview me at college because I was so busy, I just didn't have enough time in the day to do everything. A Couple years into college, 
I recognized that I was so busy I couldn't do college or my athletic career at 100%. I just didn't have enough hours in the day. So I decided to forego my, my economics slash marketing focus on applying that full-time to my paddling career. And that's when I transitioned out of school. And I was, you know, I spent the next well, roughly 10, 15 years just being an athlete. During that time, I set several world records. Uh, I was ranked the number one freestyle kayaker in the world one year when I won the pre-world championships. And I was constantly in search of the next challenge. We're all different. For me, if I don't have a very specific goal, it's hard for me to be really ambitious. So early on in the sport, my goal was just pushing the extreme end of the sport as far as I could without killing myself. Um, once I'd done that for enough years, I was looking for a new challenge. And I had, as you know, Nick, I had, because you were a part of the sport, there was so much criticism always directed at me. And one of the criticisms during the early days is, Kato's not going to live through the end of the year. He's just pushing the sport too far. Year after year, I was proving those critics wrong. And then people started saying, well, okay, I guess Taylor's okay at the extreme thing, but he can't freestyle kayak. I've always thrived off criticism. They're actually my, they're, I love having critics because it keeps me ambitious. I want to prove them wrong. So I decided to get into freestyle kayaking with the goal of, of uh, being ranked number one in the world at some point. So I spent the next several years uh, focusing on that. And once I had won the pre-world championship, Championships to sort of have that ranking. Then I was looking for a new challenge. So I got into the extreme racing end of the sport. And after having a couple of years undefeated, I just needed something new. And that's how I applied that's how I applied my, my entire paddling career to, to just staying ambitious. I always believed it. it's never that I was really just innately more talented than the rest of the people. It's just that those that train the hardest win the most. Um, your father-in-law, EJ, I mean, he knows that, a tremendous athlete. You're a world champion yourself. You recognize, I'm certain, that at the end of the day, it comes down to how well we prepare ourselves. That typically determines the results that we're going to have, whether it's in business or whether it's, it's, it's in, in athletic endeavors. I was just going to say, I, I totally agree with, with what you're saying there, and, and I think I see it a lot in kayaking as well as in other sports as well, but where someone gets super just focused and, and laser focused on one thing, one event, one goal, and they go all in and, you know, eventually they succeed. Cause I think, you know, having that focus is, is very uh, important and having like, you know, having the goal of, of what you're trying to achieve. You were one of the few athletes that I've really uh, looked up to in the sense of both being able to focus, you know, on their athletic career and, and on their, you know, um, endeavors within the sport but also being able to transfer that in more of an economic sense and being able to, to do both the business side and the athletic side of being an athlete. Can you just talk a little bit about, um, you know, any advice that you have for an up and coming athlete that would say maybe wants to make a career out of it or doesn't even know how to make money as an athlete or as a kayaker? What I've always done is spent far more time trying to understand the perspective that a company has in the value I'm going to provide to their brand, not what I want from that company. Because at the end of the day, nobody cares what I want. They care about what they want. So take Rebel or Teva or Adidas or any one of my sponsors. I was always pitching myself, myself from the perspective of how I was going to help benefit their brand. 
It was never about what I wanted. That was always secondary. Uh, if I could convincingly sell them on the value I was going to provide, the rest was going to take care of itself. Um, the reality, Nick, is that there are so many things in life that I'm bad at. I mean, I'm, there's just so many areas that I just don't have interest. Um, I'm not good at it, but there are several areas that I'm very good at. And I just prefer to enhance the areas that I just have an aptitude um, towards. Uh, that being business, marketing, um, and relationships, understanding, and I know this sounds simple, but really recognizing the fact that at the end of the day, no one really cares what you want. Once you understand how to give them what they want, you're going to get what you need out of that relationship also. So making sure that relationships are mutually beneficial because they never last if they're not. I, my motto was always live for today, but while not at the expense of planning for tomorrow. So I always knew that my paddling career was at some point going to gonna, uh, be in a decline and was going to end. And I was always planning for that day. I was always preparing for that day. So through my paddling career, all the money that I made as an athlete, I was investing in index mutual funds because I recognized that there's many, many decades of data supporting the fact that you can't be a passively managed fund. So my focus was to remain the best, uh, remain focused on paddling and just stuff, stuffing all the money that I had and that I was making um, into index mutual funds. About five years from the end of my paddling career, I knew that I was going to be retiring in roughly five years, something like that. And I was, trans I was starting to plan the transition into what was going to be next. I knew that in the paddling world, I was doing exactly what I wanted to be doing. So unlike some athletes, I had zero interest in being a rep or working, for, working within the industry. I was already a pinnacle of the industry in terms of what I wanted to do. Um, I knew that when I moved on, life was life's too short to do one thing. Uh, no, no disrespect to people that are doing some version of the same thing for 20 years. It's not me. I need new challenges, completely new challenges. So what I started doing about five years from the end of my paddling career was redirecting my focus away from solely being on being an athlete and asking myself, well, what do I want to do next? Well, the question I had to ask myself is, well, what's important to me? What was very important to me was having a tremendous amount of free time. I was, at the time I was dating um, Jamie, who's my partner now, and I knew we were going to have kids in not too long. And I wanted to be able to focus on my children. I wanted to be able to focus on other sports that I, that I wanted to get into, like dirt biking, which I really could never do before because I was an athlete. I couldn't risk injuring myself. And uh, I, I thought about buying companies, actually, initially. I thought, well, maybe I'll just start buying businesses. And there was one criteria that that didn't fit, and it was that I was going to be far too busy. I just didn't want to work that much. So I thought, okay, how can I handily outperform an S&P? I mean, people, investors always talk about a risk-free risk rate of return, right? Which is basically 10-year treasuries. Like, that's not for me. I mean, you're getting zero yield off that. These days, anyway, you are. The reality is I could have retired with the money I had in index mutual funds, but one, I wouldn't be using my mind if, if, if I had just gone that route. Two, I thought there would be a way to handily outperform my benchmark, which was the S&P 500. If I can get, let's say, 8 to 11% passively, if I can't outperform that somewhere else by a, a decent cycle, why would I ever get my hands dirty, so to speak? Um, I eventually arrived on real estate. Real estate sounds really interesting. I think that I'd have a tremendous amount of free time. Um, 
I think that well, I think that if I buy right, I could very easily outperform the S and P uh, while having less volatility. This was my my uh, hypothesis anyway at the time. So I started looking to to buy real estate, and for the first five years, I was getting outbid on everything. I bought nothing. And I thought, this is crazy. It, the math, I mean, keep in mind, this was a long time ago. I didn't know much about real estate, but I'm a very logical thinker. I thought, how are people continuing to buy this real estate? The math just doesn't work. Fortunately, I didn't buy anything back then because the math just didn't work. Finally, in a way, I started to find some opportunities. But where I live on the West Coast, by and large, there were nothing was being fire sale priced. By and large, you still had to go out and create opportunities. Uh, so I was working with banks on um, buying up short sales. I, I was working with lien holders to buy debt at a discount. I was doing anything to create a better buy. Um, and as 08 turned into 2009, 2010, 11, 12, I just kept buying real estate. Um, back then, podcasts weren't, were, I, I'd never even heard of a podcast until many years after that. So. I was really operating from the perspective of what made logical sense. I didn't have mentors in the real estate realm, um, but at the end of the day, it's a math play. And you, in my opinion, although mentors are wonderful, you just follow the math. And if the math says buy, you buy. I mean, clearly there, there's, a, there's a lot more to it than that. I mean, demographics and cap rates and everything else, it's helpful to have somebody that's been through it and made the mistakes so that you don't have to. Um, but I, I always heard people say, Oh, I'm into storage units. I'm going to buy storage units, or I'm into mobile home parks, or I'm into multifamily. And to me, that's the wrong. That's the wrong approach. I'm into anything where where the cash flow justifies the purchase price. I don't care whether I don't care what asset class it is. Um, and if I'm going into an asset class I don't understand as well, as long as I'm being compensated at a better cap rate, I have more margin for error to make a mistake and still make money. So that's. That's sort of been my approach um, to my business career these days. I, I mean, I barely work as it is, um, but when I do, I'm very, very focused on making sure that uh, first and foremost, I don't lose principal. It's it's very hard to get money back from losing. I don't like losing money. I'd rather walk away from the deal if I have any level of um, trepidation with regard to the merits of whether the basic fundamentals of a deal make sense or not. So we kind of talked about a whole bunch right there, which is awesome. First of all, thank you. But just going back for a second to when you were talking about a sponsorship and, and, and saying how you wanted to make sure it worked for them um, instead of, you know, trying to see their, have them do something for you. One, I love that you're, you're adding value, okay? Because for anybody out there listening, value is extremely important. And then you're able to take that value and get compensated, you know, for, for your efforts. So essentially you're at, when you were an athlete, essentially, a you know, a, a paddling billboard for the most part. Um, and then you're able to take those finances and you're thinking smart and investing that with something that's going to take that money and make you more money. Um, was the real estate. So you were saying you got more into real estate in 2008. Were you still paddling then? Or was that all post post paddling? I was, it's a great question. I was paddling, I paddled for a couple of years past that, but my paddling career was really winding down. So I wasn't traveling extensively like I had been prior to that. Uh, I really had roughly three months out of the year that I was, that I was paddling for the last couple of years. So it was very, I had a lot of free time at that point to kind of start that transition a little before fully retiring from paddling. That's awesome. 
So you're already thinking ahead of the game. You're you're providing value instead of looking for you know the value out of these sponsors and opportunities. You're taking that money. You're investing it wisely. You're still doing what you love, and then you're able to essentially after afterwards retire, live the life that you want to do, and and still continue to do activities that you want to do, mountain bike or uh, dirt biking and and so on. Um, that's, I mean, it's been pretty amazing and it's quite the blueprint to just kind of like fold out and show, Hey, here's, here's my life plan. And it sounds like when you were pretty young, you already knew, like, almost like you're writing a book, like, okay, here's, here's the start. I'm going to like use my youth, uh, and do this. <clears throat> then when I'm in my peak, I'm going to take my finances and reinvest it over here. Then I'm going to kind of pivot and go in this direction and just do something else that I love to do and continue to live off of the returns of my, essentially my investment as a youth, which is pretty cool. Um, now it's, it's been great. And you know, what's interesting. You bring up a good point. Uh, and that's adding value. Like, it's really interesting to me. When I my career, right my career, there are so many similarities, whether it's adding value. If you're an employee, at the end of the day, you're adding value to your employer. And if you're not, you're going to get fired. If you don't understand how you're adding value to any organization, you know that your days are numbered. Um, when I'm buying real estate now, at the end of the day, I'm adding value. If I can't add value, um, why am I buying? There might be other reasons to buy, but at the end of the day, I'm always looking at how to add value, whether it's to my relationship with Jamie, whether it's to my children, whether it's to real estate I'm purchasing, whether it was to sponsors when I was an athlete. Um, it's about adding value. And if you could answer that very simple fundamental question um, and apply it everywhere in life, you're going to be hard pressed to not be successful. But you're right. I've always, for me, I've always been a planner. I could have told you when I was 20, roughly speaking, when I was going to have kids, when I was going to retire from paddling. Um, I hear people say all the time, oh, life just sort of happens. It does if you don't have a plan. If you have a plan, it's entirely possible that life's going to happen. It's going to throw you a curveball and things aren't going to work out the way you had planned. But it's a whole lot easier to chart your course prior to being there. And it's to me, it's, it's, it's amazing how often you actually can follow the chart, the, the chart that you've plotted long before actually getting to that point. Yeah, I like that a lot because there's, uh, I, I forget how the saying goes exactly, but it's something like, um, you know, a ship without a destination is bound to stay lost forever because it doesn't know where it's going. Whereas if you have a destination, you might not hit it exactly, but you're certainly going to be a lot closer than if you never had the destination to begin with. And I think that that is with goal setting, with planning, you know, your life out with, with pretty much anything in life, just having that, you know, end in mind, you're way more likely to achieve it than never having the goal or end in mind to begin with. I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. So yeah, for the last 10 years of my life, um, since retiring, I've just been focused on cash flow. Some investors I hear them talk about yield. Yield matters, but it matters a whole lot less than cash flow. And what I mean by that is, if you still have uh, W-2 income or human capital with a very stable job, okay, perhaps perhaps yield matters more because the cash flow isn't that important. You have good human capital um, income coming in. But when you're relying on passive income, streams of income to support your life and your family's life, at the end of the day, you need cash flow. 
right? If I over leverage it just to juice my yield, but it means that my cash flow is actually a whole lot less. Going into a, into a recessionary environment, you're, you're going to wish that you'd focused a whole lot more on cash flow. So don't get me wrong. I focus very much on yield, but I care even more about cash flow. And my brother and I, my brother's an MBA, smart guy. He retired at 39 um, with a portfolio of real estate and way back in the day. We had discussions over, he was talking more about yield. I was talking more about cash flow, but at the time, he had a good paying job, very stable uh, stream of income. So he could kind of take that approach. I was, I was already retired at that point. I cared a whole lot more about cash flow because I always believed and still believe today, you make, you have the ability to make far more money in a recessionary environment than you do in a market that's on its way up. You look at the last 10 years, right? Everybody's going to do real estate. Everybody's talking about pulling their equity out, um, refinancing and rolling in the next deal. The reality is a lot of these people have never seen a bad market. I'm going to make a whole lot more money. At least my theory is I'm going to make a lot more money when the market turns because I'm so focused on cash flow that when people are losing their assets, I'll be the one buying. Now, of course, you know, I, I limit my, I limit some of my, my, uh, potential during markets like we've seen over the last five, 10 years. Um, but at the end of the day, I think I'd rather get rich a little slower uh, than go bankrupt real quickly. So I'm just very, very cautious with my debt levels. Like right now, my debt level portfolio wide is, is roughly 15%. Uh, I mean, that's obviously from an investment, from a real estate perspective, that's like tiny. Um, but the theory being, I want to be very well positioned so the market turns and one of these days it's going to. I want to be well positioned that at that time I could start putting leverage on assets and, and acquiring more at better cap rates. So it, it sounds to me like you're essentially just taking, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're taking, you know, maybe what you've learned in paddling with risk management, risk management with all the like craziness and stuff that you've done over the years. <laughs> and you're just applying that to your finances and, and business life of current. Um, is that kind of, do you see any similarities where, where maybe the risk management that you learn from paddling has uh, helped you in business and finance yeah. as of now? It's a great question. I see a tremendous amount of similarities. Back when I was at an athlete, I was doing motivational speaking and I was speaking at, at certain very large corporations. And part of my, my speech was always about risk management. I believe that there was very little difference between my risk analysis in a corporate executive's risk analysis. Let me give you an example. Uh, let's take something that, that is a very visual eye candy example. That would be the world record waterfall that I set, set back in the day that's no longer the world record. When I was analyzing that waterfall, the question is, if something goes wrong, where, where is it going to go wrong? Um, if it goes wrong, how bad is the consequence, right? So from a, from a risk-weighted analysis, um, where is the risk? And in the event that that risk happens, how bad is the consequence? Uh, every decision in life, for the most part, should be evaluated from that from that very objective analytical approach. Um, I, now let's fast forward to real estate. Any piece of real estate that I'm acquiring, I spend far more time analyzing what could how I'm going to lose money, how I'm going to make money. I should be able to figure that out in about five minutes. Um, but the reality is, I care very very much about not losing principle. So I spend a lot more time trying to figure out where the risks are, where are the risks that I understand, that I don't understand. Um, demographics, I mean, uh, competition coming to market, 
there's there's just a lot of aspects to it that are that involve how really not to lose money. Um, so that's that's the approach that I certainly took during my paddling career. And one of my greatest achievements I can say today is that I had a you know a 15 plus year paddling career and I never was seriously injured. And that that uh, uh, I chalk up to mostly my risk analysis. I mean, there was some luck along the way. If I made an occasional mistake, I kind of got lucky that I didn't get hurt. But by and large, you don't take the risks that I took day in, day out and not get injured unless you were doing a very good job with risk analysis. So real estate, exact same approach. That's that's amazing. I definitely, I mean, I have learned a lot through risk management from paddling it and just, you know, applying that into my life. And it's it's interesting and it's it's almost hard for me to even, you know, envision living my life with without the paddling background because of this whole risk analysis where everything I do now is is, you know, I run it through this risk analysis filter in my mind and I wonder if I had if I had never started paddling if, you know, my life if the way I would think and process things would be, you know, through that same filter or not, but yeah, or whether that's just the, that's just who you are, and it didn't matter where you applied yourself in life. That was the, the calculated analysis you were going to have. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, hard to tell. <laughs> Teo, from <laughs> from all the things that you've done, I mean, you've run some massive, massive rapids, waves, waterfalls, all this stuff, all the paddling that you've done over the years. What do you consider to be uh, one of your wildest rides? It's a great question. When I think back during the, the Twitch series era, um, that being the kayaking movies where we were just running the hardest whitewater we could find around the world, it's kind of one giant blur <laughs> in the sense that everything was just so dangerous um, that I, I just couldn't limit it to one or two or even 10 things. I mean, it was like every day when we were filming, I was putting it all on the line, recognizing that if I made a mistake, I was going to get injured or I could, or I could die. And we did this year after year. Um, so I couldn't really speak to one particular uh, event. I mean, I guess, I guess thinking it through, like there was, there was one drop called Lacey Falls up in Canada that fell into the ocean. And it was roughly a 300-foot sliding waterfall that landed in at its deepest spot, perhaps three feet deep water. I literally had a crew that was moving rock, barnacle-covered rocks out of my landing pad um, to get to get it as deep as possible to three feet. So you know that certainly stands out. But you know I've got I've got fifteen others that stand out kind of similarly. Yeah, no, I definitely remember watching the the Twitch videos, and at the time I was pretty young. I think I was maybe thirteen, fourteen, and I definitely was thinking like you guys were insane for sure. It's I mean even looking back. Uh, <laughs> For anybody out there, definitely go like just Google search or on YouTube, look up like Teo Berman. I think it's highlights or greatest hits or something like that. And there's just, there's all sorts of, you know, craziness mixed in there. Some really awesome drops, a couple carnage lines. And yeah, it's, it's some pretty good stuff for sure. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. So <laughs> right now I'm getting to a, I'm getting to a really interesting point in my, in my career, so to speak. I mean, I call it a career very loosely because I, you know, I just don't work much. Um, by design, that is. For the first 10 years of, of buying real estate, um, let me back up a hair bit. I'm very financial, uh, fin financially focused on just spreadsheets of numbers. What I'm not good at, what I don't have an interest in, is anything maintenance oriented. So I can hardly read a tape measure to this day. 
it's kind of funny to think that I've been in real estate for this long. And I know that those things aren't my strengths. They're certainly not what I'm interested in. So from day one, I've hired people to do all the maintenance. Um, a lot of people when they get into real estate, their value add is they're putting in sweat equity to improve the quality of the asset, to increase rents, and then maybe to, to hold the asset or to sell it. That's never been, you know, I've never been a, on that side of it. So I've, I've very much recognized for a long time that a lot of times you make more money by managing your expenses than you do your top line revenue. Um, certainly on a smaller scale when you're buying stuff like duplexes and, and, and fourplexes. I mean, the, you know, new roofs can just be, they can just crush you, crush you. Um, they, they, they can crush a years of income. Um, if you're not careful. So I was just very cautiously managing the, the, the expensive side of the business. Um, and, but I was the one that was actually managing the, the financial side, uh, and managing the tenants. And I've done that for the last 10 years, but I'm in the process of actually transitioning to, I have some, uh, maintenance person that's been with me for the last three years or so. Just a wonderful, wonderful asset to my business. And, uh, and I've just recently added somebody else who, you happen to know very well, that being Rothfuss. And for me, it's a really, really exciting phase to, to my business because my life has been loosely a series of 10-year chapters. So for the last 10 years, I've been the one actively involved in, in the management, the day-to-day operations. But I'm now transitioning into this phase where Rothfuss is taking over all of the day-to-day operations of, of my real estate portfolio uh, as we continue to grow the portfolio. So it's going from what I would call or consider a very small business, but I'm putting the systems in place right now and working with Rothfuss to get these systems in place so that I can grow the revenue uh, tremendously, but not add more employees. So it's been really fun to start to work with Rothfuss uh, and start to put these systems in place so that I can see revenue go up by, uh, let's say, three quarters of a million to a million and not change my personnel at all, but have the right systems in place so that everybody's accountable, myself included, Rothfield, my maintenance person, so that when we see this growth, that we will see in the process of building a, a 19 apartment building uh, that we could talk about or not if you want. Um, it's exciting to be entering this new chapter, having somebody from the pattern world. I mean, Roth is this, he, he's a very, very uniquely talented individual. Um, I always thought roughly five years from now, I'd be stepping out of the active management. But Rolf came to me and said, hey, Teo, he actually came to me because he bought a storage unit facility from, my, from me. And when he was going through the analysis on whether to buy it, I was just so impressed with his approach. It reminded me of me 10 years ago. This guy's got, he has all the, all the right abilities to be really successful at managing real estate and growing his own portfolio. So five months after buying the facility from me, he came to me and said, Taylor, I would really love to work with you in some capacity. And again, I sort of put myself in his shoes and I thought, okay, well, how, how could I see this working if I were Rafa? And so I, I went back to him and, and presented something that I thought made sense that where our interests would be mutually aligned because it's the only way a, a relationship could work long-term. And so I moved up my timeline of stepping out of the active managed side of my business by about five years because I don't believe in life that people that are uniquely qualified for whatever you need come a day, come along every day. And uh, Rafa, you know, I'm highly confident has, has that right skill set. So I'd rather move up my timeline, 
know that I don't really have the scale to put these systems in place now. I can easily afford it, but I don't need it yet. But it was worth doing because I have the right players, so to speak, that I could see having a mutually beneficial, uh, I guess, trajectory for, for many years to come. I, I like that. There's there's a couple things in that. I didn't want to inter- interrupt there, but there's a couple things in there that you really, that you said that I really liked. And I think that you know, anybody listening can, can take from the first thing, you know, going a little bit farther back was, um, you talked about managing expenses and that works in real estate, but it also works, you know, as an athlete, it works in anything in life. If you want to bring in a better bottom line, a really good place to start is to look at your expenses. Um, and so, you know, if you're wanting to make a career as an athlete, that's probably a good place to look. If you're wanting to uh, to start your own real estate portfolio, also a great place to look. The next thing you that you were mentioning that I really wanted to speak on was uh, the fact that you had the vision of like, okay, you're you're talking about you've you've mapped your life out in these ten year chunks, and you, you've got an idea of when you're going to kind of get out of the active management, but then you're taking opportunities that come to you and running with them. And I think that's really important that people just realize that sometimes opportunities may come at you and you might not be ready for it or you might have even been planning for it, but it was like, you know, a further down the line type thing like, oh, I'm thinking about writing a book and then out of the blue, an author contacts you and says, hey, do you want to co-author a book with me? It's probably a good idea to just, you know, run <laughs> run with that opportunity instead of be like, oh, I was going to take that a couple of years from now. and. And it's cool how you're doing that with, with, I'm sure you did it as an athlete as well, but you're yeah. definitely doing that with your business right now. Um, and I'm, I'm stoked for, for you and Rafa to be doing stuff together. Rafa's a great friend of mine. We had him on the podcast earlier. And, uh, and from what I know of, of Rafa, just because we've been friends for a long time, I feel like pretty much anything that he really focuses his energy on, he will be successful at. So I think you've got a great asset there um, on your hands. And, um, I, I know I want to be, you know, um, I want to be effective with, with the time that we have here with us. Um, but of those 10 year chunks, can you just give us a quick little, so what's the 10 years from now vision? Can you share? It's a great question. It's a great question. So this is a great segue into that. So I spent more time with Rafa trying to understand what his 10 year plan was, because if, if that didn't, if that wasn't mutual aligned with where I saw mine being 10 years from now, clearly it wouldn't have made sense to start that relationship. So the 10 year plan now is really to have the right business structure in place to grow the business, um, to scale it uh, with the right systems in place that we can even add personnel when we get to that point. And the systems are already there, so it's very easy to insert people. Um, At this point, I'm more focused on new development. Partially, it's because I live in a smaller community. There aren't that many assets out there to buy um, and to buy at the scale that I would want to be buying at. So it might be easier to just build existing. I'm sorry, build new. There's some real, I wouldn't do it for this reason, but with cross segregation studies, things like that, you can save a lot on tax. It can, be a, it can be very tax advantageous to go that way. I know Roth is very, very interested in the development side. So I'm actually going to bring him in on this new apartment building that I'm working on building right now, um, trying to get him up to speed so that uh, down the road, he could really be the GC or, 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 or 
manage, you know, use whatever adjective you want, manage these building projects moving forward. So now the thought is, is, is certainly I'll always buy existing if the math works, and if not, simultaneously, I'll also be working on developing, um, whether it's storage units, multifamily, mixed-use commercial, wherever the math makes sense, I'm open to, to any of them. Um, I, I should say that I, I've been the developer um, on a couple custom homes that I've lived in, but I've never developed something that's, I'm getting ready to build a 16,000 square foot building. Um, and I recognize for me, there's a bit of trepidation there. Like my strength is not being a builder, um, but to make the math work because building costs in my area are so insanely expensive relative to, to what rents are. I need to be actively involved to, to try and keep the cost per square foot build cost something that, that I can still make the math work. So, you know, in life, it's always about risk analysis, right? It's just, that's just, that's what you're always looking at. So for me, I'm recognizing that I have some weaknesses on the building side. Like at the end of the day, my strength isn't going and making sure that the concrete was poured right and that the framers doing everything right. So I need to bring people in, whether it's at a consulting level or someone else to make up for those weaknesses on my part. But I want to be able to manage the risk of this, of this building project because the reality is you can make a lot of money developing and you can also lose a lot of money developing. Clearly, I understand what that risk is. The question is, how do, how do, you, how do you mitigate a risk like that? Um, for me, I'm choosing to mitigate it um, simply by using more capital. You know, I'm not, I'm just, I'm actually using cash to build this project, recognizing that I might be over budget, I might screw it up. But if I'm not over leveraged because I'm not borrowing, at the end of the day, it means I'm just going to make less money if I screw it up not going to lose my asset. Um, so at least that's my approach with this one. So moving forward to, to answer your question, it would be working with Rafa to continue to uh, grow the portfolio because Rafa is making more money on that. Uh, Rafa could be collecting a development fee if he's building stuff for me and then a percentage of, of gross rents on the back end because he's managing everything. Um, also seeing Rafa continue to build his portfolio, I don't like relationships in my life that I feel aren't mutually beneficial. So I, I really, really want to see Rafa be successful with what he's doing. And the only way he, I can help him with that is if I'm also being successful with my portfolio. Um, so that's what the next 10 years are going to look like. That's awesome. My, my big three takeaways so far are risk management, um, you know, take opportunity when, when it comes at you and, um, and, and look for partnerships that are mutually beneficial that you're able to add value to. So that's been pretty awesome, Teo. I love that you took, that, you took that away from it. I mean, you, you, you captured all the key points that I'm not sure I had as much clarity on as you just captured in, in 30 second takeaway. So nice work. Awesome. Thanks. Well, let's move into our final round uh, that we call the fire round. And I'm just going to fire a couple questions at you. Uh, Teo, do you have a favorite quote that you live by? No, <laughs> no, I don't. I, I really don't. Um, people say things at time that that give me pause, and, and I go, God, that's that's a very insightful thing to say. Something I heard recently was uh, something to the effect of, "Don't tell me what you have going on right now. What could it be, and what do you need to get it there?" Um, and I thought that gave me pause. I thought about that. I thought. What a great, what a great question, right? I mean, so often we're, we're buried in the, in the minutia of whatever we're doing right now. 
but stepping back and taking the 10,000 foot view, so to speak, and going, okay, where would I like it to be? And what do I need to get it there? Is a question that we should be all, we should all be asking ourselves, um, if not on, an, on a monthly basis, certainly on an annual basis. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and it's something that I definitely try to remind myself maybe on a monthly or, or bi-monthly basis where I try to take that 10,000 um, uh, step view and I'm just like, okay, where am I actually going and how am I getting there and, and what do I need to get there? Um, and, and, and are the things that I'm doing today helping me get there? Because exactly. sometimes when, when we take that approach, we're like, oh my God, why am I even doing this? Yep. Yep. Teo, you spoke earlier about um, reading lots about finance and stuff like that when you were going to college and different things. Do you have a favorite book or a current book that you're reading? That's a great question. There have a lot of favorite books. Lords of Finance, uh, about central bankers in the, uh, roughly 100 years ago. To me, it was just, a, I just love it. Um, I lo uh, Liam Nelson has a number of books on finance that I think are just fabulous reads. Um, there's a lot of books that, that I just, there's not much better in life than getting into a really, really good book. I have nothing that I'm reading right now. I read Red Notice a while ago. Uh, not, well, actually it is a finance-based book, but it's also on like corruption in Russia. Uh, another great book. So there's a lot of books that, that I really, really like. Awesome. Um, and then do you have any mentors or people that you have uh, looked up to, whether it's through your paddling career, um, you know, business, finance, real estate, anything like that throughout your life? I don't know that mentors would be the right adjective to use. There's people that I've, that I've looked at to emulate what I, what I like about what they've created um, and also where I think that they could have been stronger, you know, where, where I think things can be improved upon. Um, I'm not one of those guys that's looking to recreate the wheel. That's just not me. Um, but I very much look at and analyze how things could be improved upon that people are already doing well. Um, so for example, I've mentioned earlier, like Dan Kabir, I mean, he did a lot of things well um, 20 years ago. Uh, there were things that, that, in my opinion, he wasn't doing so well. And those were the areas that I was trying to improve upon. I have some friends now that, uh, you know, a friend of mine that, that has, has owned hunt and bought hundreds of millions of dollars worth of real estate. And it, it's fun to have people like that to bounce ideas past. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm not a speculator. If the math doesn't support the purchase price, I just, I won't pull the trigger. Um, unless there's some other value add that I see. Um, so I wish that I had more people that, that I, I was surrounded that I surrounded myself with that were, that had been where I would like to see myself going. Um, but the reality is in my, it is sort of in my environment, there aren't a lot of those people. Um, not to say that, that there aren't a lot of people around that I don't learn from. You know, gosh, I have a, a friend of mine that, that was an analyst for uh, Fortress and, and I have another friend of mine that, that manages or manages the fund of, uh, couple billionaires that are building, I mean, just massive real estate deals. So I wouldn't call them a mentor. I would call them, they're, they're more just friends of mine. And we're always bouncing ideas off of each other, which is for me, just, it's, it's just one of the desserts of life, really, right? Having people around you that you, you admire, you respect, that you could bounce ideas off of. Um, it's just great. 
Yeah, extremely valuable to to have anybody in life to to bounce ideas off of, whether it's a mentor, whether it's just a friend, whether it's a parent. Uh, I mean, having anybody to just bounce ideas, even just sometimes I find myself speaking to people and just speaking my ideas out loud, I will find things or think of things that I didn't even think of. So even just having them as a yeah. soundboard sometimes yeah. can be extremely beneficial. I uh, totally agree. Yeah. yeah. Teo, if you could go back in time at any period of your life and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? <laughs> it's a great question. And this perhaps doesn't make me seem very self-reflective, but by and large, I haven't made big mistakes. Um, so conceivably, you would say, well, perhaps the advice should have been to take more risk. Like I recognize that I've limited my up to upside potential so many times in business or even uh, negotiations with, with contracts back in the day. Um, but I've always believed a burden hand is better than to push. Um, and I, I recognize that, you know, my, my, my growth will be slower. I mean, from a financial perspective, um, because I'm, I've always tried to manage my downside risk. Um, and I've been accepting knowing that I'm, I'm giving up, I'm giving up yield to achieve that, but I'm better positioned when the market turns on, um, or I'm better positioned when I'm above that classified waterfall um, by, by doing everything I can to manage risk. It's not to say I haven't made mistakes, but with the data I had at the time, by and large, I've made good choices. Um, I like that. I've made good choices. Yeah. Teo, I've got one more question for you. And if today was your last day and everything that you've done up to now is erased all of your your waterfalls all of your entire kayaking career your real estate portfolio everything was gone but all you were left was a pen and a paper and you could leave three truths and that was it what would your three truths be <laughs> live your life by your own standard that is defined by what makes you happy i think that perhaps especially in america it's very easy to get into the orthodox rut of the way that people do things. But the reality is when I look around myself, I don't mean to be overly judgmental, but there aren't a lot of people doing things in a way that I want to do things. Like I don't want to live my life the way other people are living their lives by and large because that's not what I want. So constantly analyzing, am I living life on my terms or am I just doing something because everybody around me is doing it that way? And I never stop to ask myself whether I even want that would be very high on my list. Awesome. Um, and I know this sounds cliche, but also clearly defined goals, you know, and a roadmap to getting there. I do believe in, in writing down what your objectives are every year. Um, you know, I just choose when you want. I just choose beginning of every year to make sure that I'm still making choices today that are moving me in the direction of my short-term and long-term goals. Love that. Um, Teo, thank you so very much for joining me. This has been a complete pleasure. Uh, where, If anybody wants to reach out and connect with you, what's the best way for someone to connect with you? I don't really have a way for people to connect with me. I don't, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not trying to syndicate deals. I'm not trying to, to manage other people's portfolios. I'm kind of just doing my own thing. Um, I'm happy with that. So I would say... 
reach out to Rafa because <laughs> I know he's way more into the social media thing than myself. Uh, I'm happy to talk with anybody. I mean, anybody can send me an email. Uh, anybody can call me. The reality, Nick, is I like to see people be successful. So I've thought for a long time about starting like this investor forum for the, for just athletes. I think there's a lot of athletes that really don't know how to transition into into whatever's next for themselves. They don't know how to manage the finances. They don't know how to even ask the right questions. And, and I am happy talking with anybody that wants to better themselves and their financial futures uh, or their financial future. Um, people want to send me an email, give me a call. I, I love talking to people about finance. It's just, it's just a passion of mine. And I, I love to see people, all people be successful and have a, a budget in place to be successful as it applies to their own lives. Awesome. Well, thank you again so very much, Teo, for joining us. Thanks for sharing some of your stories and lots of advice, uh, especially for finances. Um, and for all of our listeners out there, I hope you guys got some value out of this, whether you're you know, an up-and-coming athlete, whether you're trying to get into finance, whether you're trying to get into real estate. Uh, if you guys are, uh, feel free to reach out to Rafa or Teo um, as there are years of experience uh, between these two guys. And yeah, if you guys got value out of this show, please share it with someone else that you think might need to hear this. And otherwise, I'm Nick Troutman signing off, wishing you all an awesome day. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.